Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. Hope you're enjoying your little jig around the house to the Radio Marinara theme song because that is the show you're listening to now on 102.7, whether you're online, listening to us on the old analogue radio, digital, or you're listening to us in the future. Welcome on board the Good Ship Marinara. My name's Cade Mills and I'm joined in the studio today with... Um, My name is Jeff Maynard. And the cabin boys here. Cabin boy, we've let you out. You're looking resplendent in your little sailor suit. Oh, thank you for that. (laughs) I just noticed with that theme song playing, we're all kind of concentrating and everyone's head's jiggling around. I know, we can't, except for Jeff. (laughs) Jeff's sitting there in his tuxedo with his martini. I am. And he butted the Cuban out on his forehead before he came in the studio. Well, I was told to dress for sort of liner ships and grand old ships. It was a toss-up between sort of the uh, tuxedo for most of the ships or... I was going to come in in a dressing gown and a life jacket for the Titanic. (laughs) I went for the tuxedo. Before we get too far into the show, um, Jeff's dress code has given away some of the show already. (laughs) Yes, I have. I'd just like to put a big shout-out to Tim Thorpe for Vital Bits. He kept me entertained as I left Phillip Island at 6 o'clock this morning. I got to listen to the whole show and it made my drive so much easier. And to think he's probably been doing this... I did the sums in my head, so he's been over 20 years. Average, say, 50 weekends, giving him two weekends off. That's around 2,000 shows. Tim has done. That is phenomenal. And it never gets old. It never gets old. He's just putting his record collection away now, dusting it off. (laughs) More than 30 years. I thought it was 20 years of Vital Bits, maybe. No, we're getting corrections here. But he's ageless, isn't he? He doesn't look a day older. He could be 120 and we wouldn't know. He's been around so long. (laughs) Now, look, today the show has pretty much been run by... um, Cabin Boy and Jeff. So first up, we're going to have a guest that Cabin Boy has brought to the studio. Yeah, we're going to have a chat to Michael Brady. Uh, he's an illustrator and he's a historian. He's looked into um, ocean liners, which is, um, well, kind of romantic, isn't it, ocean liners? You have that, uh, you know, as you, Jeff's dressed for the occasion. So, um, yeah, so we're going to have a chat to him just after um, about quarter past nine. And I'm curious about the whole difference between an ocean liner and a cruise liner. Because you say cruise liner, everyone, a lot of people just shudder and go, oh, whereas an ocean liner, as you said, does have that romance about it. Is it an age thing? I did look that up, but I think we might ask my cat. Okay, yeah, we'll save that there. <laughs> right. And then we're going to follow about, that up. Uh, yeah, about 9.30 we'll be talking to Sue Crow via uh, Skype in Sydney. Sue's the convener of the Oztech Advanced Dive Conference and the Ozdive uh, dive show, which are uh, being staged next weekend in Melbourne for over two days at the uh, Melbourne um, Conference and Exhibition Centre, a.k.a. Jeff Shedd. And so we'll be talking to Sue about that uh, great dive show and conference next weekend. Yeah, and there's a lot of divers that probably already have tickets to the show, but if they don't, they probably will be running out to get them straight after this interview. Right. And then... We follow that up with... Uh, That'll be my segment where I continue the history of diving um, using James Bond movies, which seemed like a good idea when I 
came up with it last year. But uh, um, um, anyway, we'll, we'll we'll have something to do with the James Bond movie and something to do with the history of diving. So I look forward to it. I always look forward to little audio grabs you bring in, Jeff. There's always something out of the blue there. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Triple R. Yeah, I'd like to welcome Michael Brady. He's an Australian maritime researcher and illustrator. He's the founder of Ocean Liner Designs and he creates large-scale detailed profile drawings of famous ships from history. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, um, it's not only the illustrations, it's also the history that you're into, isn't it? Yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um... How'd you get into it? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, as a kid in kindergarten, I yeah. used to draw ships, but it never went anywhere. Yeah, so. it's funny. I was raised in a very ship-friendly environment. Is probably the way I'd, I'd put it. Because yeah. Dad um, was a migrant. He was part of a, the Ten Pound Palm scheme, and he came out in 1959 from Britain, mm-hmm. which is why I still have a slight uh, English. Probably, well, it does sound rather proper. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> which I do get picked on for. <laughs> so you just make us sound bad. Yeah. <laughs> So he came out uh, to Australia on a ship and obviously, you know, it impresses a little eight-year-old kid from yeah. London. And so he remembered it very, very clearly and would always tell me these stories about stopping off in the Suez. He, he came over on Strathnaver from Piano, talking about all the boats coming out and, and selling things to people up in the hull of the ship. And it was just really evocative. And so I think that grabbed me. And then at the same time, I was at school when the Titanic craze came out, when uh-huh. the film came out in 1997, uh, 98. And so that really, you know, that was... Uh, easy to get swept up in. So, yeah, I was um, yeah really, really uh, keen to explore the topic more. And thanks to that craze, there was just a lot of great shipping information out there. Anything to do with the Titanic, literally the amount of, you know, rivets and bolts down the side of the hull you could, you could investigate very, very easily. I did yeah. want to ask, the Titanic has been overhyped a fair bit, isn't there? Like, there's, <laughs> there's a hundred and thousands of other stories just as tragic as the Titanic. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. the Titanic doesn't even scratch the surface. I mean, the, um, I think one of the, not to go down too much of a, a, a sad track, but yeah, some of the worst losses of life, like in wartime, for example, mm. the Wilhelm Gustloff was a, a, a German ocean liner that was torpedoed and, and sank with a, an unbelievable amount of, of lives lost. I think like eight times the amount that yeah. lost on Titanic. So, but it, to my mind, it serves as a bit of a kind of gateway for people who are interested, maybe lightly in engineering, say, for example. If you can get your head around the way the Titanic was built and operated, you then know how the majority of ships from that era were built and operated yeah. because they were all so similar in the way that they were constructed. Do you have an engineering background? So I studied industrial design, which uh-huh. is more like concept um, ideation and generation. So mm-hmm. you've got to build a coffee machine, they take it to an industrial designer and they kind of sketch it and you know, make it up. So um, there was some overlap, but it's, it's a great way of understanding the concepts because then you can kind of like take the lure of, of, on the hook and kind of learn about the Titanic. Mm. And then when you go to visit the Queen Mary in Long Beach in California... You'll know how it was built, and you'll have some understanding of how it how it works. You know? How long did you spend there? I haven't been yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been. All my friends, they all live in the US, and they say, "Oh yeah, Mike, you got to come out here, man. It's really, it's great. You'd love it." Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. I'm sitting here, fifteen thousand kilometers away. Like, yeah, great. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. It's just around the corner. But Australia has been probably built on cruise liners, haven't they, mm. ocean goers? Because it, uh, so many people came to Australia by ship. Yeah, and it's that's one of the motivating. Factors factors behind the reason yeah. I started my business was because I thought that um, there's, there's two elements, right? So I make, my, I make my videos and documentaries about the way ships are built. 
but I draw these profiles. And so I focused a lot on um, Australian uh, immigrant ships. Mm-hmm. So like the, uh, the the Greek liners, like Australis and Patrias, and then the Italian uh, Guglielmo Marconi and, you know, all these. And you really see it, especially where, where we are in, in suburbs of Melbourne, like Brunswick and, and Fitzroy, but there's such a strong European element. Yes. Absolutely to Australia's benefit, you know yeah. what I mean? And these ships carried thousands, millions of people, really, yeah. to Australia to settle, and they brought so much with them. Like, yeah. there's a reason Melbourne has the best coffee. Yeah. And it's because, you know, these ships were bringing out people who knew how to make fantastic coffee and worked hard and, and brought a lot to this to this country, I think. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, a small debt of gratitude made, you know, to be paid to those the shipping companies. Are there still ocean liners around? Or like, you were asking, Cade, weren't you, about the... Um yeah, what's cruise the difference? Ships. When's it an ocean? When's an, when does an ocean liner become a cruise ship? That's a great. That's a great question because ocean liners have also served as cruise ships. But to my mind, it's about the, it way the use. It's, the way it's used. Think of a um, party limousine versus a bus. Right? Mm-hmm. Party limousine is a cruise ship. You're not going anywhere in particular. Maybe you're just kind of oh, driving yeah. around the city. You know, having a champagne in the back. An ocean, an ocean liner is a bus. Okay. If there's traffic, it doesn't matter. It's going straight through it. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're going to your destination. You're getting there as fast as possible. Maybe maybe not some bus lines, but you're getting there as fast as possible. So um, ocean liners have to be built differently because they have to go through rough weather. Whereas a cruise ship, they can kind of just you know go around it. They they aim to go around it so that passengers don't get don't get tossed around. Yeah. But ocean liners have to go at insane speed. Like the United States was the fastest ocean liner of all time, get up to about 40, oh, wow. 40 knots, forty three yeah. knots, and it's about a thousand feet long. Um, and that had to go straight through storms. So and we don't have ocean liners anymore? There is one in operation. Yeah. And it is, um, it's the Queen Mary 2. So oh, okay. Queen Mary 2 was built in 2004 as an ocean liner, um, as an homage to yeah. the, the, the world gone, you know, the world past. So she does maintain a regular transatlantic mm-hmm. service. And, of course, the QE2 was retired in about 2008. And so she was the second last ocean liner, I think. So Queen Mary okay. 2 has taken over the mantle. And, and uh, although she does serve as a cruise ship, you know, take people on joy cruises and what have you. But, um, yeah, she was built from the ground up by a um, fantastic team. She was built at St. Nart's Air, um, which was the shipyard that built uh, the Normandy. So they've got fantastic pedigree. Like, we're all nodding, but we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shipyard built oh, a thousand beautiful ocean liners, and yeah, so she's she's definitely got the pedigree. So yeah, the last one. So when you come to draw them, they're, they're not around anymore. So what's the research to actually find out their dimensions and what they actually look like? Yeah, fortunately, there's some some really good plans on um, online that you can get, and and I think part of the the benefit of doing what I do is because I'm so. Um, you know, invested in it and so interested. It attracts people who are also interested and they want to share things. So people love to say, oh, you know, you mentioned this ship and I've got these plans of this ship that no one else has and they send them to me, which is unbelievably generous. Um, But then there's a lot of looking at photographs and, you know, kind of like with the magnifying glass because a lot of these things aren't on plans. And if you want to get them as accurate as possible, which I do because I just have this weird fixation on it, um, and the, the reason behind it, for example, like, say, ventilators and the things that clutter the decks of ships. Yeah. Very mechanical and not that interesting unless you're a, a nerd like me. But if you came to Australia on one of those ships, You'd remember. you might remember your dad when you were you know, five years old you know, setting you up and putting you on top of one of those vents while he went and spoke to a ship's officer or something. Mm. It might trigger a memory. Mm-hmm. And, and that's happened before. People say, oh, I remember those deck benches on the new Australia. And <laughs> it was so hot downstairs we had to sleep on those and the, the men slept in a different stateroom to the women. They were up in the front in a dormitory and so dad would come up and we'd, you know, we'd yeah. see each other. The only time we'd see each other was on those benches and it just fired off a memory. So that's, that's why I get so invested in the details, yeah. 
Yeah, um, one of the ships that's always fascinated me, and I've followed the story and I've researched it and I've written about it, is a uh, ship that spent a long time sailing between Australia and uh, Vancouver. Mm. It was the RMS Niagara. Sank off New Zealand in 1940, carrying eight tonnes of gold, hit a German mine. Um, If I was to turn around and say I'd now want to get ship's plans or information about that particular, where would I go? What sort of, you know, as a novice walking in from the outside saying, I want to learn about more about this ship. Is there places, databases or things I can go and say, look, um, get plans and all that sort of stuff? (laughs) Yeah, there are. I mean, even just a cursory, you know, surface level, um, you know, uh, RMS Niagara plans search on, on Google can surprisingly yield some good results. But what I like to do is look at, go to the start and look at where it was built. Um, And the shipyards typically will have either, if they're still in operation in an archive or if they're not in operation anymore, it's it's been sold off. People buy plants. This was built in, I think, Clyde or something. Brilliant. Yeah, well, so Clyde Bank. Yeah. yeah, the Clyde-built ships, have. there's brilliant. They say it made some of the, the nicest plans of British ships that I've ever seen. But yeah. a lot of them um, are held by... Uh, the University of Glasgow, I think, or the University of Edinburgh, one of those two. Yeah. And they've got an unbelievable archive of, of yeah. like, thousands of these. Um, the Greenwich Museum as well in, in yeah. the UK has um, thousands of, of unbelievable plans going back to about the 18th century or before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you really want to investigate these, because not only are they, like, beautiful works of art, these plans, they're all done by hand, of yeah. course. Yeah. So each yeah. one, as, as technical as they are, there's, like, this funny overlap with yeah. with art, I think. Yeah. Like, they are stunning. They're, they're magnificent. So, oh, truly. So if, if it's, it's a ship you're interested in, it would make a, a great wall piece. Yeah. You should commission one from Ocean Liner Design. <laughs> I, I, I'm... Now, okay, here we go. Now, if I do, what website do I go to? Where do I look, Mike, uh, online? Uh, that was, how smooth was that? There you go. <laughs> no, if you want to see the, the very drawings. Very smooth handball. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, yeah OceanLinerDesigns.com is where I uh, have my, my pictures. You'll see a lot of them. I have articles up about the history of the ships. Um, so give them a look. But yeah. yeah. Now, you talk about all this archival material that you get mm. your hands on, and it seems to be something you use a lot in your videos. So I went down a bit of a rabbit hole at looking at one of your videos and thoroughly enjoyed it um, and highly recommend people check it out. It was a topic that I was like, oh, this could be interesting, but I found it abs- – <laughs> I'm just being honest. I found it absolutely fascinating. Just And a lot of it was the old footage and stuff that mm. you've sort of brought to life with it. Again, is this something that people are just sort of freely giving to you or is there a network of you? you know, there's train spotters or there's ocean liner <laughs> spotters. Does you have that sort of community there as well? Yeah, there is absolutely a huge ocean liner community on the internet of people who are just interested. And, and interestingly as well, it is mainly comprised of 18 to 28-year-olds. Um, there's this huge resurgence of people really? just yeah. fascinated by this, this thing that doesn't exist anymore. You know yeah. I mean? It's like classic cars. You know, like Ocean liners are a snapshot of this era. Like, if you're sitting in a 55 Cadillac, you know, you're taken back to 1955 yeah. for a minute. These ocean liners, you know, a ship built in 1910. You, you know, it is a time capsule of 1910. And throughout their whole careers, they very rarely changed over the course of 30 years. So, um, so yeah, people are willing to, willing to share, I think. Um, the, the, the material that I use in my videos, like a lot of the archival newsreel is kept behind paywalls by, like, British Pate and, and these big news organisations. But there's also a lot that's been made free... Um, by like the Prelinger archive in the in the UK, um, sorry in the US, they've got tons of footage of all kinds of stuff, um, random like government made newsreels and things that just happen to show ships in the background. So I kind of like trawl through these videos and see five frames of the Queen Mary and freak out and pause it and take that. <laughs> <five frames. laughs> yeah, I can 
can use that for my next video. That's good. You know, so you, know, you, get, you get a bit creative. But the, the topic choice is interesting because you don't have to be a ship nerd to be interested in well, how did the iceberg sink Titanic? Yeah, and that was the one I was watching. And it actually led um, – my wife asked me this question and I wanted to check mm. with you. Apparently one of the funnels on the Titanic was purely cosmetic. Is that true? Kind of. This is one of kind those Kind of. Because okay. <laughs> you do dispel a lot of myths even in the mm. first few minutes I saw. And, like, I was actually – it's very – well-researched, I guess, as a scientist sort of seeing the research that went into it, you sort of not so much blew apart all the bullshit that's around it, but you sort of went into it very factual, but the storytelling side of it was still there. So, sorry, can we go back to the funnel? Yeah, that's a great, great question. This one, this is, that's a good one. Yeah, so one of the things that's in the popular, you know, like, story behind this is, yeah, the first three were real, the last one was fake. And to, to a point, that is true. Like, the first three fed directly down yeah. to the big coal-burning boilers, so they had to get that all that gas and smoke out somehow. So the first three funnels, but the fourth one sat on top of the engine room um, where they didn't need to vent smoke per se, but they needed a lot of fresh air because you've got something the size of, like, a cathedral, you know, 10 or 15 storeys down at the bottom of the ship underwater. So there's a lot of hot air and, you know, they need to get as much clean air in as possible. But then above that was the ship's uh, galley, so where they prepared first and second class meals for, like, you know, 1,000 passengers. And then above that you have the uh, the smoking room for first class, which had the only functional fireplace on board the Titanic. (laughs) So there was a flue that led from the fireplace from the, of that, that smoking room up into the fourth funnel. So the fourth funnel was doing a bunch of things, venting gas and all kinds of stuff. So while not, like, spewing tons of smoke, if you look very closely at photos, you can see a little little wisp. <laughs> but was it the Titanic? But was yeah. it the Titanic? This is the, uh, the, <laughs> that could go on for hours. That's the one that drives me nuts the most. Uh, but yeah. I'll be putting out a few videos on that topic soon, yeah. uh, attacking that myth. Are you ever interested in cruise ships? Or Yeah. yeah, yeah, oh, yeah you still so. find them fascinating? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, hey, if it's big and it floats, I'll you're be there. A, you're there. So I'm, yeah. I'll be there. I'm, I'm doing a video soon on um, P&O's most recent uh, cruise ship. And comparing it to uh, the one, they, the first Australian cruise ship, Strathaird, that, that was doing the rounds in 1932, and comparing, okay, what would you get on a P&O cruise in 1932 uh-huh. versus 2022, yeah, nine yeah, years later, yeah. and the, the differences, suffice it to say, yeah. are fairly significant. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we've got to better wrap it up there, but I'm sure if anyone wants to contact you, they just need to hang down Princess Pier to uh, <laughs> when any of the cruise ships comes in, and I'm sure they can engage you in any kind of conversation. Absolutely. Um, give a shout-out to your um, YouTube channel. Yeah, brilliant. If you, yeah. Just, if you look up Oceanliner Designs on Google, you'll find my, my YouTube videos will pop up, or Oceanliner Designs on YouTube. And uh, feel free to write to me. My email address is on my website, and I always look oh, forward cool. to, to hearing feedback. So let yeah. me know if you think I'm doing a good job. And as Cade said, be careful. It's a rabbit hole. It really yes. is. <laughs> <laughs> Most uh, certainly is. Uh, Mike Brady, thank you so much for uh, telling us all about uh, uh, Cruise Line. Thanks so much for having yeah. me. Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And uh, I'm actually really pleased to say our next uh, guest on the show is Sue Crow and Sue joins us by via Skype from Sydney. Uh, many people in the in the dive industry in Melbourne will know that next weekend we have the two-day Oztech Advanced Dive Conference and the Ozdive Show, which is a uh, 
well, a conference and a dive show running jointly at uh, the Melbourne Conference and Exhibition Centre, which is the uh, the big building on the Yarra River. And uh, to tell us a little bit about that uh, dive show and conference, I'm pleased to uh, introduce Sue Crow. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. Lovely to be here. Now, this is the first time uh, Oztech and uh, the Oz Dive Show have been held in Melbourne, but it's been in Sydney uh, pre-COVID for many years. Just tell us a little bit about the actual uh, conference and the show itself and what sort of things people can expect. Okay, well, actually, this is going to be the second time, but Oztech first started in 1999, and uh, it's been running pretty concurrently since then every second year predominantly in Sydney. It did come about 15 years ago or so to Melbourne, um, uh, but it's, it's most of the time it's held in Sydney. But we felt after the 2019, we really felt like a bit of a change. Melbourne was doing some great things. There's lots of divers in, in Melbourne who um, I probably felt a bit left out. So we decided to change it up a bit and bring it to Melbourne. Uh, so, What's the show about? Well, it's initially when it started, it was predominantly a technical conference. So speakers came from all over the world. They were doing extraordinary things. So they might be exploring caves or wrecks or photography, but it was primarily more technically focused. Um, and as it's over the years, it's morphed into two things. And this is the combination of recreational, free diving, um, and the technical. And I think we've moved a bit away from what people might consider is technical because what, what's technical exactly? I mean, obviously, if, if you're using a rebreather or you're doing extra deep dives or something, you might be considered that's definitely technical. But most people now are pushing the limits. They're using nitrox, they're in dry suits, they're diving in Antarctica or they're doing lots of different things. Um, and so the lines are blurred, and this show represents that. So you have the, uh, on the one hand, you've got the conference, and in the conference, you've got uh, people from, uh, or international speakers from all over uh, the world who have come to tell their story, to tell us what they're doing. It's a lot of, there's some cave exploration, there's uh, research, scientific research. There's Dawn, who works at NASA, and she studies the limits of human endurance, if you like. And so she works not only with the Army and the Navy, but also with the astronauts to see just how far they can push the human body. And, of course, they use the underwater environment to do this because it's the nearest thing we have to space. So she's absolutely fascinating in uh, the, the research and the studies that she have, and we can all learn from it um, and how that can help reduce things like decompression sickness or, or just make us better divers, really. So just to be clear, Sue, so in the conference, we can, you know, me, self, people, can go online, uh, find out when these speakers are talking and then book to sit in on the session and listen, ask questions or be involved. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's uh, almost correct. You would buy a ticket, a one-day ticket or a two-day ticket to the conference, but you can go online at oztech.com.au and do that. If you're not sure, you can come to the show and buy a general entry ticket, and that gets you through 
to the show itself. And at the show itself, that's where you're going to find all the equipment, all the travel, all the photography. Um, and with that ticket, the general entry ticket, you can see quite a few speakers um, that sort of cross over more. So we have, um, you know, a big um, a session on the spider crabs, for example, in Victoria, which is uh, people might like to know a little bit more about. We've got speakers who are doing film work, uh, Anthony Gordon. We've got a free diving photography workshop. There's photography workshops that you can go and register to. And that's a, a sort of a separate thing. So you don't, if you don't want to necessarily go to the conference, you can come to the show and do all of that stuff as well. Um, and if you decide you, there's one or two particular speakers, you can go to the reception desk and buy a, a single speaker or, and, and just um, scan in for that session if, if you're not too sure you want to buy the whole ticket at, at the same time. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the spider crabs. Um, Ality is someone that we have on the show quite frequently um, and it's something that I guess we've been following at Marinara for quite a few years and it's interesting that research is finally being done after a long, long time. Mm. I was curious with some of the speakers you're getting there, it is a lot of like people that are pushing boundaries and people that are sort of taking things to this extreme. Now, you mentioned earlier about the research coming out of NASA. Is there anyone you're really looking forward to getting over there? Because when you run things like this, surely you go, oh, I really want to meet them. I'm just going to invite them to come to my conference. Have you got a few of those people <laughs> lined up? Yeah, definitely. I would definitely say uh, Bill Stone would be right up there for that. He's just an extraordinary um, person in so much as he's been working over the years um, he, he's a cave explorer, he's a researcher, he's a scientist. He was the first person to develop a, a robot that could scan the inside of caves. And he's gone forward with his robotics so that, and there's a big panel with a big discussion, is, is he, are his robots going to overtake deep divers? Oh. <laughs> Actually... So that'll be quite, that'll be great fun because, uh, you know, obviously... Somewhere in the middle will be the right answer. but um, And he's, he's just done an amazing thing. Now, his robotics, not only does he use, again, the underwater world to develop this, but he's another person who's developing robots that they're going to send to Mars. So these oh. robots that have started underwater through the cave systems have now morphed, and they will be... He's developing those robots to actually uh, go up to space and, and um, explore Mars. So he's... He's just an amazing person. And so, yes, he was definitely on my list. Um, I mean, we've got our usual um, suspects like Simon Mitchell, who is always doing research on, you know, various things like decompression or uh, rebreather, you know, the trouble people can get into for rebreathers. And he's always a hot, a hot speaker. So he's, it's always good to see him. We've got some a lot of new people that we haven't seen before. Um, we've got Marco Constantino, who's going to come and talk to us about freedive competition safety, because when they run a big freediving competition, for example, they use um, safety divers, they use scooters, they're using now nitrox for freediving, which is, a, is a, sort of a new, if you like, a new gas for freediving, which is used in safety. So he'll be very interesting because a lot of people, I think, don't realise just how complicated it can be behind the scenes 
Um, and I think a lot of us are fascinated about that, even if we're never, ever going to do it. It's the stories that are super interesting. Um, and the same would go for, we've got Bobby, Bobby Chasson coming first time ever. In fact, this is the first time he's ever spoken in a diving forum. And he was the founder of the FBI diving unit in America. So they put together this FBI diving unit because you, you had the SEALs and you've got the police divers and you've got um, commercial divers, but nobody really uh, was doing crime investigation per se. And so he put that together and the equipment that they use, they are incredibly well-trained. They have to cover everything. So they do cover commercial, technical, um, you know, everything so that they can handle whatever it is they might be. And some of the stories that he has to tell about the crime scene investigations that they've had to do underwater are fascinating. Now, most of us will never do that. But to me, that's fine. That's right. Uh, I think there's one one story of a, a particularly unsavoury gentleman who was murdering people and chopping them up. And the way he got rid of the bodies was that um, he was up in um, northern America and they they fish in the on the ice lakes. You know, have you seen them do it? They put up these little tents and they drill a hole and they fish through the ice. And so he was dragging bits of body in his esky out to the lake <laughs> put up his little tent and slowly getting rid of all these bits of bodies under there and so they had to go in and you know work it out and find out and and of course unfortunately for him they were perfectly preserved but he obviously had <laughs> so and and fascinating things like uh, i don't know you remember when the bridge collapsed over in america and all the all the uh, cars fell into the ocean. You know, they have to go into situations like that. Um, and so he's got some stories that will just blow you away, and that's just interesting. Uh, but also it's all, it's interesting from uh, the, what they use for the equipment and, and how the divers are trained, and they all have to be FBI agents first, of course. So, um, it, you know, so that's something that I'm very, really looking forward to uh, to watching. Um, we've got Stefan Andrews, who's, who's talking for the first time. He's an ex-Our um, World Underwater scholar, Rolex scholar from, from this neck of the woods. He's working down in Adelaide, and he's specifically concentrating on the Great Southern Reef, which is a big thing for all of us and protecting that area. And he uses film and marine research to protect uh, or look to protect that. So he'll give us some identity on that. So there's a a vast range of um, of speakers. Um, we've got quite a few disaster stories, which are always popular. <laughs> I don't know why that might be, but definitely. Pete Mesley, who's quite well known uh, as a, a, a wreck photographer, particularly, but he also trains people on rebreathers. He went on a liverboard trip not too long ago, and uh, the boat sunk in the middle of the night, <laughs> right? So... He's going to tell us about that and what happened and what really happens. I mean, we all sort of think about this maybe or train or, you know, we've all sat on both boat briefs plenty of times, but I wouldn't, for most of us, thank goodness, nothing like that has ever happened. So his story, which I'm sure will be highly amusing, he's an excellent presenter, about what actually happened, how how it transpired and then what they learned from it and things that he would do differently. And, and that's 
that's very interesting. Yeah, and I've got to jump in too because in in addition to and I'm um, Sue mentioned Bill Stone uh, who developed a thing called the Sunfish, which is like a little underwater oh, yeah. drone, and I've yeah. done a bit of research on that, and I am so looking forward to having the opportunity, hopefully, of meeting him. Um, but uh, but in, in addition to all the uh, fantastic speakers, uh, it, it's just a show in itself of all the stands and the... Um, yes. And, and one of the highlights there, I have to say, uh, will be myself because... I, <laughs> I, in all modesty, um, as, as part of the Historical Diving Society, we will have a stand there and I'll be uh, there for the two days and meeting people and we'll have um, uh, early Australian diving equipment on display. We'll have uh, all sorts of things, but there, there's just a, an incredible. Even if you you don't hear the speakers, oh, yes. to walk around the, the the show, look at all the stands, the travel companies, the dive equipment people. The uh, just just there's just so much to see. Uh, I'm just going to sort of wrap it up. The the best place I think Sue, correct me if I'm wrong, is to go to oztech.com.au, and that's Oztech yep. O Z. T-E-K, and uh, you you look at the tickets, turn up and buy a ticket at the door. It's next weekend. It's Saturday, I think, from 10 o'clock till 5 o'clock, if I'm correct, or...? Yes, and then there's a a special showing of a documentary by Laurent Ballester on the uh, deep Mediterranean, so if you want to come to that. But there's a lot of things that come with your normal show ticket, so have a look at all of those if you're not sure. And you can do a virtual cave dive. So if you've never done cave diving, you can come and do it. And it's down a local Mount Gambier. So yeah. that will be hello, really fun. Yeah, so uh, it's next Saturday and Sunday at the Melbourne Conference and Exhibition Centre on the Yarra River there. Oztech, O-Z-T-E-K dot com dot A-U. Uh, it's just going to be a, a, a probably one of the biggest events uh, related to diving in the Southern Hemisphere for... for yonks since COVID so it's, it's just going to be an amazing weekend yeah, and uh, thank you so much for coming on Sue so Jeff could plug his appearance <laughs> at the show that was most appreciated so it's my pleasure I just hope to see everybody there because it will be really special Triple R You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We're on to our usual usual segment, which Jeff is probably hoping is going to finish wrap up soon at the end of this year because he's had to watch a hell of a lot of James Bond. Well, I did. I, well, I don't mind watching the James Bond movie. What I did is I painted myself into a corner last year because I said I'd talk about the history of diving using James Bond movies. And once I'd been through two or three, <laughs> Thunderball and uh, I think it was The Spy Who Loved Me or something, he gets into an Iron Man suit and a few of those, I'd, I'd run out of things. But uh, so, so I am struggling. But... We'll, we'll soldier on for, for Radio Marinara. Um, and I'm going to talk about nuclear submarines or how you power a submarine. Oh, that's topical. Mm. Uh, and that is topical because mm. about a year, I think it was almost exactly 12 months ago, Australia dropped its um, contract to um, purchase diesel electric submarines from the French and um, upset them enormously until we threw a lot of taxpayers' money at them to, to calm them down. And we decided to switch to American-built nuclear submarines. Um, and I noticed, I saw in this morning's uh, age, 
that uh, there's a report that it's going to take us 20 years to build a nuclear submarine. Part of the deal was we'd build them in Australia, which was sort of a political ploy to get local jobs. But it's going to take us 20 years to build a nuclear submarine in Australia. So we're just going to buy a couple of American ones, which will still take years anyway. Uh, but anyway, so what's all this got to do with James Bond? <laughs> pretty, much, uh, pretty much nothing. <laughs> pretty much nothing. But I do sort of come in with sound grabs. So all I'm going to do is say... Um, I looked through some James Bond movies uh, Friday and came up with The World Is Not Enough... So we'll finally give Pierce Brosnan a gig. And it's not only uh, got a nuclear submarine in The World Is Not Enough, it was the last appearance of Desmond Llewellyn, who was Q, the quartermaster, the man who used to supply James Bond with all his gadgets and cars with ejector seats and all that. And this is the last time Q appeared in a James Bond movie. And they briefly handed over the role of Q to none other than John Cleese um, as, <laughs> as the bumbling person. So... For for no other reason, I just like it. Uh, let's have a listen to John Cleese taking over the role of Q. And you might be, this is 007. If you're Q, does that make him R? Ah, yes, the legendary 007 wit, or at least half of it. Now, I dare say, 007, that you've met your match with this machine. As I was saying, the very latest in intercepts and countermeasures... Titanium armour, a multitasking heads-up display, and six beverage cup holders. <laughs> um, so, and the, the relation, relation to diving? I'll get there. Uh, <laughs> but when you take it out of context like that and not watching it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It is. I'll, look, I'll, I'll get there. Look, OK, uh, something to do with history of diving. Anyway, in the late 19th century, the submarine started to develop and the problem with powering a submarine is you have an enclosed space. You, you enclose a space, you put it underwater. How do you run any sort of engine to power it? Well, of course, any engine, whether it be an a internal combustion engine, diesel engine, it has to suck in lots of air, create a fire or create combustion and have an exhaust, and you can't do that. So submarines really only started to become mildly efficient when you introduced the electric motor because you had a battery electric motor and um, that's why. The problem with that was that uh, the batteries went flat. So the first submarines in the late 19th centuries, they would have an electric motor and a steam engine. And the idea was you went to the surface, you, you fired up the boilers, uh, you, you ran the steam engine on the surface. When you had to submerge, you cut down the steam, you shut off the steam engine, you went down and you, you ran on battery. Uh, that changed with diesel engines. Diesel was more efficient than electric. And so you basically ran diesel engines on the surface uh, to propel yourself, also to charge your batteries. You ran some sort of uh, generator, charged up your batteries. When you had to submerge, you went down and you ran, your, um, uh, you, you ran underwater until your batteries went flat. And um, that was fine, but you had limited range. And diesel electric were what we were going to buy off the French a year ago because um, it wasn't nuclear. Anyway, let's have a listen to James Bond, uh, the next thing. And he mentions a nuclear submarine here, so that's enough of a segue. <laughs> you know, in the old days, there were at least a hundred places where a submarine could surface undetected. Submarine? Nuclear. He's not loading cargo. They want the sub. They want to use the reactor. That's it? Put weapons-grade plutonium in that sub's reactor? 
instant catastrophic meltdown. Making it all look just like an accident. But why? The explosion would destroy Istanbul, contaminating the Bosphorus for decades. And there'd be only one way to get the oil out. Yeah, down south to the Med, the King Pipeline. So the plot of this movie, which is a bit vague, um, is, is that um, the baddies are going to steal a nuclear submarine, sail it close to Istanbul, uh, have a meltdown, destroy everything around there, and so the, the, to get the oil out of uh, wherever they're getting the oil out of, they have to route the um, uh, pipeline somewhere else, and that favours somebody else rather than sending it through that way. And that, that's pretty much the whole thing. But anyway, back to nuclear submarines. <laughs> How a nuclear submarine is powered... It's, it's actually nuclear submarines are still steam-powered in a way because what you're using is using the nuclear reaction uh, to heat water. And so you heat the water, that creates a steam, and you use a steam turbine to um, to power a nuclear submarine. They're still steam driven. Mm-hmm. Um, the the problem with that is is it's easy enough to uh, have a nuclear reaction to heat up the water. What you have to do is cool it down before it gets too hot. So uh, nuclear reactors fail when you fail to cool them down, and uh, they get too hot and they melt. Um, so anyway, that's the submarines we're getting. We're going to have little nuclear reactors one day. Um, they will heat water, so you'll have a steam-powered submarine in Australia, or lots of them, presumably, and uh, you've got to cool the things down. Anyway, James Bond is stuck underwater with the uh, Bond girl, who's some forgettable actress, and um, he's got to swim outside of the submarine, get up, shut something down and do something else before something else happens. So let's have a listen to that. We can force them. He's opened up the reactor and locked himself in. I have to get up there to him. We've got one chance. I'll get out of the submarine and back into the reactor room to stay patched. When the light goes red, press this button so I can get back in. James, it's too risky. If I don't make it, use this chamber to get out. Close the hatch. Be sure to exhale all the way up. Close it. So we're about to blow up, but exhale all the way up. <laughs> as you swim out of the submarine. Funnily enough, very quickly, the, the irony of all this is that we're going to spend 20 years and uh, I don't know how many billions of dollars making submarines. And uh, Sue Crow a minute, mentioned, uh, a minute ago mentioned Bill Stone, a man who's making under, pretty much what I'd call underwater drones. And they are self-guiding things that have intelligence and they're the size of a big scuba tank and uh, they go underwater and uh, there's a possibility that I'll make submarines redundant anyway. So um, anyway, that, that's <laughs> another story for another day and another James Bond Well, thanks movie. for cheering us up and um, making well, sure I don't watch any James Bond movies. Oh, <laughs> I appreciate that, Jeff. And look, and a big shout-out to Michael Brady, Sue Crow and Jeff, not only for his segment on James Bond, but promoting his upcoming appearance at the Oztech conference and a big thank you to Jeff and Cabin Boy. Enjoy your weekend. Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.